Good morning, Redeemer. This is now my third sermon that I've had the privilege to preach uh, here. And uh, a lot more people here than there would have been on February 10th when we uh, had that snow day. So a lot bigger audience. And thank you for all the people who came out of town just to hear me preach. <laughs> thank That's so great. Wow. I mean, <laughs> no, maybe it's because uh, Dean and Antonio are here. And that could be weird. Oh, okay, thanks. Okay. So the uh, text I'm preaching on today is Matthew 16, 21 to 26. So if you want to turn there, Matthew 16, and I'll read it. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would, would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Let me pray. Father God, I pray for this time and pray that your word would be faithfully preached. Um, pray that you would teach us what this, what your word here means, Father. Um, help us apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. When a soldier in an army receives an order from his commanding officer, he is expected to not ask why he has to do it. He is expected to just carry it out. It is typically not necessary for him to know, to understand the reason why. He is just to obey the, orth, the authority placed over him and trust that they have a good reason for the orders that they give. A soldier who questions orders is considered to be insubordinate, disobedient, and rebellious. Now, for those of us who desire to follow Jesus, it is not necessary to know why Jesus has required that we deny ourselves and take up our cross. It is possible to just obey him and do it without asking questions. However, it is quite the tall order, of course. I mean, just deny yourself and take up your cross, that's all. No, it's a, it's a lot to ask. And God's people, we are more than just soldiers in an army. We have been brought into close fellowship with him. To those who fear him, he gives them his secret counsel and makes known to them his covenant, Psalm twenty-five, fourteen. We are his children and his friends. So I don't believe that Jesus is asking us to just obey this command and pay this steep price while forbidding us to know why. I believe God wants us to know the deeper reason that he has called us to deny ourselves and take up our cross in this passage. And I believe that this reason can be found in his word. Now, and when you step back and, and think about it for a second, what, is, what does this command actually mean anyway? What does it mean to deny yourself and take up your cross. We will look at these things. However, as, as we seek out this knowledge, we should not do so with an attitude of insubordination. For example, when a parent asks their child to do something, and the child asks, why? Why do I have to do that? Often they are hoping the parent won't be, a, won't be able to provide a good reason. Because if the parent cannot provide a good reason, the child feels he has justification to not obey it. This is not my intention here. It's not my intention to ask Jesus why we have to deny ourselves and take up our cross 
in hopes to get out of it, nor is it my intention to inquire of his word to see if he really meant it, like the serpent in the garden asking, did God really say? Did, did God really say that? Did he really mean that? No, I don't believe this passage, and I don't believe this passage is an instance of Jesus just saying, do it because I'm God and I said so, even though he has that the authority to say that. Simply put, when Jesus asks us to deny ourselves and take up our cross, it is an invitation to something much bigger than ourselves. Now, there are three things we need to know to understand how Jesus' command is an invitation into something bigger than ourselves. One, how, how self-denial works within the Trinity itself. Two, Jesus' self-denial and submission to his cross. And three, our self-denial submission to our cross. So, number one, how does self-denial work within the Trinity? How does each person of the Trinity deny themselves in a deference for the other two? And now if you're paying attention, you some of you might be thinking, wait, what? Are you saying that even God denies himself? If he's God, why would he have to do that? Can he do whatever he wants? Now, of course, God can do whatever he wants. And what each person of the Trinity wants is to deny themselves in preference for the others. Because This is because each person of the Trinity loves the other two. And true love means giving of yourself to the other, of, de of desiring the best for the one loved, of denying of self in order to defer to the other. The Father gives himself to the Son and the Spirit. The Son gives of himself to the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit gives of himself to the Father and the Son. This is the economy of God. They do not exalt themselves. They exalt the other two and are, the, and are themselves exalted by the other two. John 3.35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. In John 14.31, Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me, that the world may know that I love the Father. In John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus asks that the Father would glorify him so that he can glorify the Father. As well, it is evident throughout the Gospels that Jesus does all his work by the power of the Holy Spirit who is working in him. And after Jesus was crucified, it was the Spirit who raised him up from the dead. So we see here each person of the Trinity loving and serving on behalf of the others. And when you love someone, and, and I'm talking about true and selfish love, when you truly love someone, you sacrifice for them. You deny yourself for their benefit. You don't selfishly take for yourself. Rather, you give to the other in praise and love for them. This is because you want to see them built up, thrive, and flourish. And so you give of yourself in order to bless them. I, I think it's very beneficial to have this understanding of the Trinity, that each person of the Trinity loves the other two and therefore denies themselves for the other two. For one thing, it's a very good argument for the doctrine of the Trinity, like when you're talking with those who believe in a monotheistic, non-Trinitarian God like Muslims, Jews, and Jehovah's Witnesses. Because if God is indeed three in one and behaves in the way I've described, then it means that love, friendship, fellowship, and community have, exist, have existed for all time, even before God created the universe or anything else. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in perfect loving fellowship with each other from eternity past. <clears throat> 
long before they created the world, even before they created angels. God isn't just a monolithic entity who is on his own with no equals to relate to, like Allah, the God of Islam. Now, it's true that this that kind of God, were he to exist, could create other beings to love and relate to, but that God is still ultimately alone in the universe because none of those things, none of those created things can fully and truly understand him nor relate to him on his level. So in this view, love cannot be a fundamental, foundational aspect of God in his creation. But in the Christian Trinitarian worldview, love is foundational and it has existed for all time. What that also means is that sacrifice and self-denial have existed for all time because true love involves sacrifice and self-denial. Now, one might think that if you're always sacrificing of yourself and serving others, wouldn't you just become drained and emptied out? You're always giving. Not within the Trinity, at least, because the beauty of this process is that far, far from each person of the Trinity being starved because they're always giving and sacrificing, each one is constantly receiving love, blessing, and praise from the other two. As each one gives of themselves, they are receiving back double from the other two. Each person of the Trinity empties themselves in order to be filled up by the others. I believe it's good to have this understanding, not just so uh, you can debate your Muslim friend on the doctrine of the Trinity, but so that we can have a better appreciation, a better appreciation for the whole concept of self-denial. Since self-denial is something that we don't just, we don't typically like to do, we tend to think it's just something that came as a result of the fall. This is similar to our misconception about work. We tend to not like it and therefore assume that work itself must be part of the curse that came after Adam and Eve fell. But work existed before the fall, as is clear in Genesis 2. In a similar way, self-denial and sacrifice have existed before the fall. And as we've seen, it's something that's at the very core of the Trinitarian relationship. And it's a glorious thing when well done. Now, arguably the best and most obvious example of one of the persons of the Trinity denying themselves is found in Jesus, found in Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity. It's really what the entire Bible is all about. The Old Testament was constantly pointing to the coming of the Messiah, and the New Testament describes what he did when he came. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus denied himself in significant ways. Prior to his coming in the world, he was in the heaven, in heaven with the Father. John 1, 1 to 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. But he condescended to leave his Father's side in heaven to take on human flesh as a baby born to a young couple of low standing and was placed in a manger. Luke 2, 7. And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Though he was God and king, he lived a life of humility. Matthew eight twenty: Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he lived a life of service. Matthew nine thirty five: And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When it came time for him to be delivered up, to die on a cross, he asked the father if there was another way, but he deferred to his father's will and not his own. Matthew twenty-six thirty-nine: 
says, Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In verse 42, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. That's the passage Joel read for us this morning. While he was praying this, he was sweating drops of blood. Then, while he was suffering on the cross in the ultimate act of dying to self, he asked the Father to forgive those who nailed him up there. Luke twenty-three thirty-three to 34 says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus, being sinless, deserved none of it, but submitted to it anyway. Now that's some serious self-denial. Yeah, he did it for he did this all for a reason. There was a definite purpose to his self-denial, his sacrifice and his suffering. Hebrews 12:2 says, "Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross." And 1 Peter 3:18, "For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God." Now, of course, Jesus didn't stay dead because on the third day he was raised again to new life, never to die again, having defeated sin and death. Jesus gave all of himself, everything, and he received it back. But as I just mentioned, he didn't just receive his own life back, he received us as well and brings us to the Father. This is what Jesus was trying to explain to Peter and the disciples in our passage in Matthew 16. If you look at verse 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. I think the disciples were just starting to get it until Peter messed it up. (laughs) See, in the part that I didn't read, which takes place right before our passage, Jesus asks his disciples who they say he is, and Peter answers that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responds to Peter that he was blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to him, but his Father who was in heaven. The Father gave something precious to Peter, the knowledge of who Jesus truly was. Peter responded by agreeing with the witness of the Father and confessing Jesus as, as the Christ with his mouth in the hearing of all, thus giving Jesus his proper honor. In a similar passage in John 6, after Jesus said some hard words for people to swallow, and many of, of his disciples leave, he turns to the twelve and asks if they want to go away as, as well. And Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Also in Matthew 19, Peter points out that he and the disciples have left everything and followed Jesus. Jesus responds in verse 29 with everyone who has left Houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands. It's a lot of things. For my name's sake, we'll receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. My point in saying all of this is, is that Peter and the disciples seem to be starting to get it. The pattern of sacrifice, sacrificial giving and receiving back and forth with each other that is, that is seen in the Trinity. See, Jesus called them to follow him and he served them and poured himself into them, and they responded by leaving their worldly things behind and following him. 
He continued to teach them and heal their diseases and do miracles. They responded by giving a true confession of faith, confessing him as Christ. And he responded to that by revealing more to them and and explaining just how much he would give of himself to them by suffering and dying at the hands of the Pharisees and scribes. And that's the point where Peter goes, whoa, you can't do that. Jesus and the disciples, especially the 12, had started building a relationship with each other through the sacrificial giving and humble receiving like that of the Trinity. But Peter apparently gets to the point where it's too much. Why exactly did Peter rebuke Jesus when Jesus said he was going to Jerusalem to be crucified? I think we tend to assume it's because Peter was hoping that as the Messiah, Jesus would go to to Jerusalem to, to take over as king and kick the Romans out. And that's probably true. But, and this is conjecture on my point, on my part, but I wonder if at some level, Peter was starting to see this process that I just described. The sacrificial giving and humble receiving back and forth between Jesus and the disciples. And now Jesus had just kicked it into high gear by revealing to them the ultimate sacrificial gift that Jesus was going to give to them. If Jesus was really going to do that for them, to suffer and die for them, what would that mean for the disciples? What would be the, a proper response to that? What is the only logical response? What is the only gift in return that they could give back to Jesus that would even come close to what Jesus said he was going, going to do for them? To make it more personal, what is the only gift that we could give back to Jesus that would even come close to what he did for us? If Jesus suffered and died for us, wouldn't that mean that we should suffer and die for him? And Jesus' answer to that is yes. You were hoping I was going to say no. (laughs) No, yes. That's what he says in our passage today. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. One of the commentaries I read said that crucifixion is a shocking metaphor for discipleship. Now, of course, we don't go to literally die physically. However, in saying that, there are Christians in different parts of the world who are being killed for their faith. In our country, there's not much chance of that happening, at least right now. Regardless, we are all certainly called to be living sacrifices, Romans 12.1. We are to deny ourselves or die to ourselves and take up our cross. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. Now, we know that we, we in no way are able to fully pay him, pay Jesus back for what, for that colossal gift that he did give us at the cross. Even if we gave everything we have and gave up our own life, it still wouldn't come close to matching the sacrifice of the suffering, perfect, sinless son of God. And he knew that we would not be able to respond to this gift in a way that could closely match what he gave to us. Even if we were to give up everything we had and give up life, life itself. But he didn't do it just so that he could get something back from us, like when like when someone gives you a, a nice gift and you give a, a gift in return. Jesus didn't do it to get something from us. He did it so that he could get us. He did it for the joy that was set before him, which was to bring us to God. And how how do we know that he has us? What is the indication that we belong to him? When we no longer hold on to our own lives, but give up ourselves and obey his command to deny ourselves and take up our cross. 
because forever who, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Some water here. Now, having this context, we can see how Jesus can can tell his disciples, tell us that if we that if anyone would come after him, that person must deny himself, take up his cross, and then follow Jesus. Because each person of the Trinity gives them themselves for the glory of the others in the Trinity. And Jesus gave of himself to us. He denied himself and suffered for us in our place for our salvation. He did it for the joy set before him, which was to re- redeem us for himself, so that he would not lose us to damnation. So when we receive Jesus' sacrifice and respond in obedience... By denying ourselves and taking up our cross, we are joining in the very life of the Trinity. We are entering into fellowship with Jesus. We are joining the same fellowship that Jesus has with the Father, since Jesus is now our representative to the Father, all through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what I meant earlier when I said it was an invitation into something bigger than ourselves. He calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross, not in order to pay him back, but in order to, to participate and partake in covenantal fellowship with God. When we give of ourselves and empty ourselves in self-denial, we make room for God to pour himself into us. It allows us to receive greater blessings from him. This is what Jesus meant when he said that whoever would, la- would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you hold on to your, your wants, your desires, your will, thinking that in this you will find life. It doesn't allow God to give you real life. If you hold on to your life, you remain an isolated person, all on your own, because you won't give of yourself to God or others. When you don't give of yourself to others, you tend to not receive much from others. If you continue on in this throughout your life, eventually you will become cut off from everyone. In the end, you become unable to form relationships with anyone, including God. But someone, someone who gives of themselves sacrificially to God and to others, the one who loses, loses his life for Jesus' sake, will receive from God true life. Now, we've talked a lot about self-denial and taking up our crosses, but practically speaking, what does this look like? What are specific ways we can obey Jesus' command? One of the resources I used said uh, that to deny yourself means to, to forget oneself, lose sight of oneself and one's own interests. Also, when I, uh, I looked up the word deny in Webster's Dictionary, and when I at, took each, each of the definition, that is each one that fit, fits our context, and I added the word yourself at the end, it was fairly instructive. So, for example, to deny yourself means to withhold the possession, use, or enjoyment of yourself, to refuse to agree with yourself, to withhold something from yourself, to refuse to grant a request of yourself, to refuse to recognize or acknowledge yourself. Uh, and the dictionary did have an entry for deny oneself, which is to refrain from satisfying one's desires or needs. Finally, the ESV study Bible says that to deny yourself means to die to your self-will. Now, what does it mean to take up your cross? Again, the ESV Study Bible uh, says that to take up your cross means to embrace God's will, no matter the cost. So to, n- to deny yourself means to die to your self-will, 
and to take up your cross means to embrace God's will no matter the cost. Another one of the commentaries I read said this, In the Roman Empire, a convicted criminal, when taken to be crucified, was forced to carry his own cross. This showed publicly that he was then under and submissive to the rule he had been opposing. Likewise, Jesus' disciples must demonstrate their submission to the one against whom they had rebelled. But as I was digging into it more, I found that the Greek word for take up and its corresponding Hebrew word is, is sometimes used in the sense of taking away sins, taking up and taking away sins. So some examples of this, Isaiah 53, 4 says that, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. In other words, he has taken up and taken away our grief and sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. John one twenty nine says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And 1 John 3.5 says, you know, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So I agree, I agree that to take up your cross means to embrace God's will for your life, no matter the cost. What it doesn't mean is that you're trying to make payment for your sins, because that's what Jesus did for you. Part of what it means to take up your cross is to grab hold of the work that Jesus did for you on his literal cross. In other words, to take hold of this truth as your very identity, which is that he suffered and died on your behalf to forgive you to forgive you of your sins, and he is now your covenant head, if you are in Christ. You are no longer under Adam, but under Christ. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. So taking up your cross means identifying with Jesus and his death on the cross to justify you of your sins and embracing God's will for your life, which involved God sanctifying you and changing your heart. When you embrace God's will for your life, when you carry your cross... It means you have to do things that you normally would not want to do and abstain from things that you would normally want to do because his will is different than your own. But when you do so, you are identifying with Jesus who asked the Father that if, that if the cup could pass from him, he asked if that cup could pass from him, but submitted to the Father's will and went to the cross anyway. So to give a personal example, one of which uh, many of you could probably relate to, I work basically on a nine-to-five job, and Becky is at home with our one-year-old daughter. When I get done in the evening, my job for my company is done, and I'm off work. And I also get the weekends off. Becky's job, however, with Margaret and with the house is basically 24-7. She doesn't get evenings or weekends off like I do with my paid job. When I was single, my free time on evenings and weekends was basically my own. But now that I'm a husband and father... I need to sacrifice some of what used to be my own time and help my wife with Margaret and help around the house. Ephesians 5.25 calls me to this because it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Later it says, He who loves his wife loves himself. In other words, as Christ loved and sacrificed himself for his bride, I am to do so for my bride. And really, I need to do it more. God's will for me is to, is to deny my, my will for myself and take up my cross and sacrifice of myself as service for my wife and daughter. And I'm sure that all the parents here have a better understanding of what self-denial means than they did before they were parents. 
Now, all of you fathers who still have kids at home, and that includes me, I don't think we fully understand how much our wives give of themselves for our kids. For them, the sacrificing begins once they become pregnant, (laughs) and their deep sacrifices will continue for 18 years and beyond. Now, we fathers certainly sacrifice too, but we could probably all stand to sacrifice more. We could all all probably uh, stand to help our wives more, regardless if we feel like it or not. You don't really want to change the baby's diaper right now? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and do it anyway. You don't really feel like helping Susie with her homework because you've put in a long day at work? The game is on, and you were really looking forward to watching it? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and do it anyway. Don't want to help your wife with the dishes? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and do it anyway. Don't feel like taking out the trash? Well, you get the idea. In his more recent book on marriage, Doug Wilson said, Every husband is called to give himself away, and this is a death. Dying to self, right? But in the glorious purposes of God, it is a death and resurrection. Marriage is, uh, end quote, (laughs) marriage is possibly the closest picture we have on earth of the Trinity because it's the process of two becoming one. Our marriages thrive when they are modeled after the loving sacrificial service within the Trinity, and they suffer when they do not. Now, when it comes to our relationship with our kids, and this is especially true with young babies, the giving tends to be very one-sided by nature. Parents give and sacrifice a ton when they have a new baby, and the baby is unable to give back in the same way, except for the fact that they are very cute and cuddly. But in the big picture, when we invest in, give to, and sacrifice for our kids, in order to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, we are investing in the kingdom itself, the kingdom of God. Now, speaking to all of us again, single, married, parents or not, the very fact that we are disciples of Christ in and of itself means that there will be sacrifices in dying to self. In John fifteen eighteen, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. That requires sacrifice and self-denial, especially if the person is a jerk or if their lives are a mess. This is another example where the giving and denying to self is one-sided. But like with our kids, it's it's an investment in the kingdom. We are called to preach Christ to those who don't know him even if it means we will be ridiculed and persecuted for it. In our day and in the culture we live in, it's becoming more and more dangerous to speak this truth. It takes and will take more self-denial, more picking up the cross as time goes on. It's becoming more risky to affirm that there is a God in heaven, that he created the world, that we sinned against him, and therefore we will all receive condemnation unless we give up our lives to Jesus. It's not popular to say that. It's becoming more dangerous to say that homosexuality is a sin, that abortion is murder, and that those who practice these kinds of things, among others, will perish in the lake of fire eternally unless they repent. To affirm these truths from God's word will will require more and more denial of self and picking up of our cross. Now, as I close, I want to read a quote to you. It's It's a longer quote. Uh, but it's taken from one of the books that Mike assigned to me for my elder training called 
The Lord's Service by Jeffrey Myers. Um, it's a book about worship services, uh, but in the context of this quote, the author is talking about Old Testament worship, the animal sacrifices, and the overall meaning of sacrifice. It was actually this quote that inspired me to write this sermon. Um, I modified it a little bit to make it more understandable, but here it is. I believe that the meaning of sacrificial death goes beyond punishment for sin. Just as I am not convinced that the form of death imposed by God upon Adam as punishment for his transgression exhausts the meaning of death, there is a kind of dying to self that God himself models in his divine communal life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Was there sacrifice before the fall? I believe there was. God created man in order that mankind would mature into the kind of life and community that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are. The triune life was the eschatological goal, or end goal, of Adam and his posterity. This would mean that he had to learn the kind of self-giving service, obedience, and death to self that characterized the divine community. In other words, the persons of the Godhead lived sacrificially, and it was God's intention that mankind mature into this kind of life as well. When Adam tossed off this plan at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God forcefully imposed it on him. The challenge for us is to relate the two kinds of death, the normal, if you will, inter-Trinitarian death, whereby each person of the Godhead dies to self and lives for the others, on the one hand, and the curse of death imposed on Adam because of his rebellion. I believe it is appropriate to suggest that because Adam failed to willingly die to self and serve his wife, God therefore imposed death on him as punishment slash training. But even if man's death was a curse, it was still the way of maturity and eschatological fullness of life. And of course, God the Son came not only to take upon himself the curse of death, but to do so as God, embodying the divine way of dying to self and living for the other. End quote. Now, my prayer is that we would be transformed by these truths. First, that even God himself, each person of the Trinity, dies to themselves in self-denial and love and service for the others. Second, that we would remember Jesus' self-denial and his literal death for us, to love us, forgive us, and bring us to himself. And finally, I pray God would teach each one of us specific ways that we can, obey, we can each obey Jesus' command to, to die to, to ourselves and take up our cross. It is an invitation to, to join in with the very life of God, the place where when you die, you are raised to new life, and when you lose your life for his sake, you will actually find it. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this, uh, um, for your word and this instruction. Lord, I pray uh, you'd use it, Lord, to your glory. Um, that uh, all here would be edified by it, um, and pray we'd go forward into our week and live this out. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Nick.